Welcome to our Lloyd Davis Visiting Professor of Shakespeare Studies public lecture. Thank you for all coming out tonight to join us for this year's, and I'm characterising it, usually say lecture, but tonight I want to say oration. So I've already made John a little bit nervous there by saying that. And an especial welcome to our visiting professor, John Wyver. I'm Tom O'Regan and I'm the acting head of School of Communication and Arts. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional indigenous owners of the land on which we meet today, the Yagara and the Turbul, no, that's terrible, Turbul people. This, year's, this year is a particularly special one in the history of the Lloyd Davis Fellowship for two reasons. First, 2016 marks the 400th anniversary of the death of Shakespeare. It has been a period of intense international celebration of Shakespeare's works and legacy as evidenced most recently as last night by a whole Q&A program devoted to Shakespeare and his legacies. UQ has since its founding supported the study of Shakespeare and his age and across the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences we are marking the anniversary year with a series of events entitled The Delighted Spirit Shakespeare at UQ 2016. I've been at this university for approximately, I think this must be my 17th year, and it's only walking with John um, this afternoon past the great court statues, not on the main entrance, but in the other entrance, there is of course Chaucer and Bill there, acting as guardians, and I had not noticed. Some academics have their heads somewhere else. UQ, okay. Under the leadership of the UQ node of the Australian Research Council Centre for Excellence for the History of Emotions, um, the Delighted Spirit Shakespeare at UQ 2016 has been organised. And our UQ events this year have included public lectures, performances, seminars, concerts, film screenings and an exhibition of Shakespeare-related treasures held in the UQ's Friar Library. The School of Communication and Arts is very pleased to be able to present this year's Lloyd Davis Lecture in Shakespeare Studies as a key part of these anniversary celebrations. Now, the second reason why this is year is special is another one. Ten years ago, we hosted our first Lloyd Davis Visiting Professor in Shakespeare Studies, the late Peter Donaldson from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He spoke on Shakespeare and cinema. Tonight is our 11th Lloyd Davis and we're returning to Shakespeare on screen, but the screen of a different kind, the televising and live cinema versions of Shakespeare. John Wyver will be talking about being there, Shakespeare, theatre, television and live cinema. All our visiting professors have typically worked across a number of domains while they've been with us undergraduate lecturing, postgraduate mentoring and research training, engagement with the general public, media engagement, interaction with the arts community, and very importantly, some of the, in, in terms of some of our visitors, continuing professional development for teachers of English and drama. John is not only giving this public lecture, he's conducting a masterclass with our RHD and graduate students tomorrow, and this morning he gave a Q&A in which a number of our undergraduate students and staff attended. And I can see some of those who attended this morning here uh, tonight. And I want to make a special welcome to those of you undergraduates who are here. Many of you are Dean Scholars Award. And that's the Dean down there and he's the 
he's, he's the uh, uh, person responsible for this award. On a more personal note, John has also been advising over lunch a number of UQ colleagues, including myself, on aspects of his and our research. So we've kept him busy, suitably busy. 11 years ago, Lloyd Davis died. For a number of us here tonight, he was our teacher, colleague, friend, father, and head of school designate. Out of this tragedy, this visiting professorship was created, it was made possible through the agency of the Davis and Duffy families. Lloyd and Julia Duffy's many friends outside as well as inside the university and the university itself, particularly the then Vice-Chancellor, John Hay, the then Faculty of Arts, now Faculty of Arts and Social Science, and the school we now call Communication and Arts. With the help of Lloyd and Julia's family and friends, the university established a perpetual endowment fund and we have sought and continue to seek gifts from those interested in Shakespeare's legacy and those who knew Lloyd as a colleague, teacher, friend and member of the extended Shakespeare family. We had many discussions as to how Lloyd might be best honoured before Shakespeare became our obvious choice. I remember well these discussions with Julia, Richard Fotheringham and Peter Holbrook before we settled on a visiting professorship. And then there was a discussion as to whether Shakespeare might prove too narrow in circumscribing a topic. But then we realised that Shakespeare would not only give us 400 years of telling and retelling, but would also give us a window onto literary, dramatic, art, film and television worlds. All these coincidentally are the aesthetic disciplines residing in our School of Communication and Arts. Shakespeare would also give us a model for writing and speaking well, given our school's commitments to good, effective writing, speaking and reporting, these things we call communication. So far from being narrow, creating a visitor, visiting professor of Shakespeare studies was as suitably expansive as we could have possibly got. So how have we done? What's our report card? As you arrive, we had, we've had PowerPoint slides showing our previous Lloyd Davis visiting professor's lectures. The, the visiting professorship has acquired a reputation internationally. Many of our alumna proudly display it as a significant honour in their short bios in their web pages. I would like us to, th I would like to think that it has meant a lot to them because they have seen how much it has meant to us. A number of staff, past and present in the school, have had, over these last 11 years, a fierce personal commitment to ensuring its continued success. The Lloyd Davis is something that every head of school knows that he or she really must get right. Julia Duffy is not able to be here tonight and asked me to pass on her apologies and best wishes. We won't hold that against her, Charlotte, because she has been a presence at all of these events, I think. In the early years, she was accompanied by Lloyd's now deceased mother and father. However, we have Lloyd and Julia's daughter, Charlotte, with us tonight in her stead. Welcome, Charlotte. For most of these 11 Lloyd Davis visiting professorships, our go-to person has been, and custodian has been Lloyd's close friend, Peter Holbrook. It has been so again tonight. Thank you, Peter. 
Also, thank you to Brittany Smethills, who you can't really see. She's hiding behind the corner, making sure that everything is working right. And Xanthi Ashburner from, the, from IASH, the Institute for Advanced Studies in Humanities, for putting John's visit together. Earlier I said I was acting head of school. Our actual head of school, Professor Jason Jacobs, is also with us tonight and has come back from leave to introduce John Wyver. It is largely through Jason's agency that we were able to get John to set aside his busy schedule with the Royal Shakespeare Company and his film production company, Illuminations, to join us tonight. So I'll hand over to Jason to introduce John. Thanks, Tom. Um, so I'll make this as, as quick as I can, but as soon as... Um, uh, uh, I, I moved to UQ and heard about the Lloyd Davis um, events. I knew immediately the person I wanted, and that's John. So I'm very glad to have him here this year of all years uh, as our uh, uh, visiting Lloyd Davis speaker. So I'm just going to say a few things about uh, uh, John's uh, uh, work and achievements, and then I'll hand uh, directly over. Uh, so John's a writer and producer with Illuminations. He's the Principal Research Fellow in the School of uh, Media Arts and Design at the University of Westminster and Director of Screen Productions at the Royal Shakespeare Company. Um, he co-founded uh, Illuminations in 1982 and since then he's produced and directed numerous performance films and documentaries about the arts. And his work as a producer has been honoured uh, uh, with a BAFTA and an International M Emmy and a Peabody Award. He's produced three performance films for television with the Royal Shakespeare Company uh, and director Gregory Doran, uh, Macbeth, 2000, with Anthony Sher, Hamlet, 2009, with David Tennant, Julius Caesar, in 2012. He's also produced uh, Gioriana, a film in 1999, and Macbeth, 2010, with Patrick Stewart. Since 2013, John has produced 10 live cinema broadcasts for the Royal Shakespeare Company, including Richard II with David Tennant and Hamlet. He was uh, the RSC producer on Shakespeare Live from the RSC, broadcast on BBC Two on the 400th uh, anniversary of Shakespeare's death earlier this year, and uh, that was seen in cinemas around the world. He also advises the RSC on their media strategy and in, uh, not long ago, in July uh, uh, this year, he produced the cinema broadcast, which I believe is showing this weekend in Brisbane. Uh, 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 Richard III with Ray Fiennes and Vanessa Redgrave. At the University of Westminster, he's been the principal investigator on the AAHRC-funded research project Screenplays, Theatre Plays on British Television which is about uh, television broadcasts of plays originally written for the theatre. And his other research interests include adaptations of Shakespeare for film and TV, the history of arts programmes on television, and he's made a significant contribution to that history himself, and inter- and post-war visual and literary culture in Britain. John's the author of uh, a book, Vision On, Film, Television and the Arts in Britain, and he's writing another book, The RSC on Screen, for Arden to be published in 2018. He's also contributed articles to Adaptation, Shakespeare, the Journal of British Film and Television, Critical Studies in Television, and he guest edited a, a special issue of Shakespeare Bulletin in 2015. Um, so that's a lot there. I'm sorry I rushed it a little bit, but you'll see 
the immensity of his his uh, 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 talent and uh, and background when he talks to you right now. Welcome, John. Uh, thank you very much, Tom and Jason, for such generous uh, introductions. Um, may I begin by saying how honoured I am by the invitation to take up the Lloyd Davis Memorial Fellowship and to follow such a distinguished list of scholars who have visited in previous years. It seems appropriate that I come more or less hot foot from the 2016 World Shakespeare Congress held last month in Stratford-upon-Avon and London. Appropriate because Associate Professor Lloyd Davis, in whose memory, as we know, this fellowship was founded, was with Professor Richard Fotheringham responsible for securing for Brisbane the last but one World Shakespeare Congress in 2006. From all that I have read and heard about Lloyd Davis, he was clearly a brilliant scholar, a great teacher, pretty good at tennis, the best of husbands and of fathers, the most wonderful and charming person, and a cricket lover. So I'm happy too, as a fellow enthusiast for the true beautiful game, that for the first time during four trips to Australia, England's team are in the ascendant, and as I believe is the case, are the current holders of the ashes. I want also to thank my kind and generous hosts, Professor Peter Holbrook and Professor Jason Jacobs, who first extended the invitation. I should say that Jason's work, and especially his foundational book, The Intimate Screen, has been of enormous importance in my thinking about television and the theater. He especially will understand why I begin this evening with the critic and BBC television executive, Grace Wyndham Goldie. Before she, do before she joined the BBC's television talks department in 1947, which she was later to head during the time of Tonight and Monitor, and this photograph obviously is from that later period, Grace Wyndham Goldie was a radio and then television critic for The Listener. In the latter role, she settled down in her sitting room on the evening of the 2nd of January, 1939, to watch a live relay of Twelfth Night from the Phoenix Theatre in London's West End. The already much-fated Peggy Ashcroft was Viola, and Michael Redgrave took the role of Sir Andrew Aguecheek. Michel Saint-Denis, was the stage director. Quote, the miracle of television came home to me afresh, Grace Wyndham Goldie wrote. There was the actual feeling of being in a theater. In other respects, the experience left a good deal to be desired, since looking at the performance on a tiny, fuzzy, monochrome screen was rather like, quote, watching the entire action through opera glasses, end quote. Such glasses had their uses, but if you had to look with them all the time, our critic reflected, you would feel your vision cramped and irritatingly limited. 
We'll return later to the ways in which live relays potentially flout an audience's rights of reception. But for the moment, let's accentuate the positives in Grace Wyndham Golder's review. Sadly, of course, there's no recording of the broadcast. So we have only her word for it that, quote, there was the view of the stage and the buzz of conversation and the orchestra tuning up and the curtain rising, all the trimmings, in fact. There was the actual feeling of being in a theater. It's this actual feeling of being in a theater that I want to explore in this lecture. As the producer of performance for the screen, for the Royal Shakespeare Company and others, as a media historian, and also as an avid consumer over the past five or six years of live cinema relays from the National Theatre, from the Kenneth Branagh Theatre Company, and elsewhere, I'm fascinated by what this sense of being in a theatre, of being there, might mean, and by how practitioners have endeavoured to impart or instill or suggest it to screen audiences for more than a century. Uh, which is what was done for television's first live broadcast from a theatre. Not the Twelfth Night that I've just mentioned, but a relay three months earlier when outside broadcast cameras transmitted J.B. Priestley's When We Are Married from the St. Martin's Theatre. On this occasion, television used a number of techniques to give the viewer the sense of being there. Again, we have no recording but the camera script, preserved in the trove of treasures of the BBC written archives at Caversham, allows us at least partially to reconstruct the evening. Two previously shot film images of the theatre exterior, a long shot and a closer pan, were shown before Jasmine Bly announced the characters and cast members. As a visual background to this introduction, the screen featured a theatre programme with a turning page. A host then had some advice. Quote, During the intervals, she proposed, we suggest that you relax as if you were in the theatre. Uh, and when the first interval came around, viewers were again exhorted by Jasmine Bly to behave as if they were in the theatre. Quote, we suggest that you should leave your chairs, put the lights on, and discuss the play. In other words, do what the audience is doing at St. Martin's Theatre at this moment. Having played music over a caption during the interval, television summoned its audience back to the screen with a theatre bell effect. This broadcast was reviewed for the listener not by Grace Wyndham Goldie, but by Peter Purbeck, and he remained unconvinced. For him, the contiguous co-presence of cast and audience was essential to being in the theatre. Quote, nothing in black and white on a screen, he wrote, however perfect it may become technically, can weave the spell of living players on a stage a few yards away. Well, 80 years on, we pretty much have achieved technical perfection, and in colour too. But still with us are the paradoxes of being virtually there, without living players on a stage a few yards away. And those paradoxes 
are neatly demonstrated by the fact that on Saturday and Sunday next, you can sit in Palace Barrack Cinema, not five kilometers from here, and watch this. Can we run the first clip, please? Uh, not that one. You. you yeah. that bear the That's great. Seat, set it down. What black magician conjures up this fiend to stop devoted to charitable deeds? Villain, set down the corpse or by St. Paul, I'll make a corpse of him that disobeys. My lord, stand back and let the coffin pass. Unmannered dog, stand thou when I command. What? Do you tremble? Are you all afraid? <laughs> Alas, I blame you not, for you are mortal, and mortal eyes cannot endure the devil. Avort, thou dreadful minister of hell. Sweet saint, for charity, be not so cursed. Foul devil, for God's sake, hence, and trouble us not. For thou hast made the happy earth thy hell. If thou delight to view thy heinous deeds, behold the pattern of thy butcheries. Mm. Oh, God, which this blood made, revenge his death. Oh, earth, which this blood drinks, revenge his death. Either heaven with lightning strike the murderer dead, or earth gaped open wide and eat him quick. Lady, you know no rules of charity, which renders good for bad, blessings for curses. Villain, thou knowest no law of God nor man. No beast so fierce, but no some touch of pity. But I know none, and therefore am no beast. Oh, wonderful when devils tell the truth. More wonderful when angels are so angry. Vouchsafe divine perfection of a woman of these supposed evils to give me leave by circumstance but to acquit myself. Vouchsafe diffused infection of a man for these known evils but to give me leave by circumstance to accuse thy cursed self. Fairer than tongue can name thee, let me have some patient leisure to excuse myself. Fouler than heart can think thee, thou canst make no excuse current but to hang thyself. By such despair I should accuse myself. Didst thou not kill this king? I grant you. Just grant me, hedgehog. Then God grant me too, thou mayst be damned for that wicked deed. <laughs> he was gentle, mild, and virtuous. The better for the king of heaven that hath him. He is in heaven, where thou shalt never come. Well, let him thank me then that hoped to send him thither, for he was fitter for that place than earth. Then thou unfit for any place but hell. Yes, one place else, if you will hear me name it. Some dungeon. Your bedchamber. Uh, so part of the seduction of Lady Anne from the Almeida Theatre's production of Richard III that six weeks or so ago I produced as a cinema broadcast. Joanna Vanderham is Lady Anne and Ray Fiennes the Duke of Gloucester. Rupert Gould is the stage director and Robin Luff the screen director. This was broadcast live to more than 500 cinemas in Britain and Northern Europe on the 21st of July and is now being shown as live in a dozen other countries, including down the road in Brisbane on Saturday and Sunday. There's a tendency to think such cinema broadcasts of theatre, and before that, opera, sprang fully formed from the brow of Metropolitan Opera's Peter Gelb just about a decade ago. Even Martin Barker's invaluable study, live to your local cinema, devotes only two paragraphs 
to the precursors of the cinema broadcast from the Met of the Magic Flute in December 2006. So one of my other concerns today is to sketch a more extensive history for live and as live relays of theatre to the cinema and to television. And to suggest that the pleasures, perplexities and problems of in some way being there in a theatre and yet at the same time thousands of miles away in front of a screen have long been with us. So outlining a brief critical history of this form, at least in Britain, is my other intention tonight. But I'll keep circling back to the idea prompted by the overwhelmingly positive Twitter feedback to Richard III and indeed to live relays of Royal Shakespeare Company productions, which include, invariably include variants of, I had the best th seat in the theatre, and I felt as if I was there. So is watching a recording six weeks later and halfway around the world just like being there? I think what I want to suggest eventually is that it is and it isn't and that it's precisely the oscillation between those two states that makes the hybrid form of live cinema such a distinctive and rewarding experience for the viewer. Let's go back a further four decades before Grace Wyndham Goldie sat at home watching Twelfth Night. In 1897, the American author and socialist Edward Bellamy invented live theatre relays to screens in the form of the electroscope. Quote, it does for vision, Bellamy wrote, what the telephone does for hearing. In detailing as one of its applications, the viewing of theatrical performances at a distance in both domestic and public contexts, Bellamy further noted that electroscope presentations raised the artistic standard of performances since, quote, this ability of one troupe to play or sing to the whole earth has operated to take away the occupation of mediocre artists, seeing that everybody, being able to see and hear the best, will hear them and see them only. Of course, Bellamy invented theatre live casting only in the sense that the protagonist of his novel Equality attends an electroscope presentation of the drama The Knights of the Golden Rule. Quote, there goes the bell for the curtain, one of the characters observes, and Bellamy's hero, seated in an armchair amongst his friends, reflects that, in another moment I had forgotten all else in the scene upon the stage. Even before Bellamy, in his 1882 novel, Le XXIe siècle, the 20th century, Albert Robida envisaged the telephonoscope. On screens in homes and public spaces, along with news events and commercials, theatrical performances from around the world are presented. Telephonoscope users simply call up an operator and ask to be connected to pretty much any theater around the world a service that is provided by the Universal Theatrical Telephonoscope Company, the NT Live of its day. The effect is an illusion, quote, complete, absolute, as if one were sitting in the front row, end quote. 
Moreover, the telephonoscope uh, facilitates remote viewers to converse with audience members in the theatre during the interval. And, and I especially like this touch, to send their applause to the stage at the end of the performance. Moving from fantasy to technological reality, let me briefly highlight services in Paris, London, Budapest and elsewhere that provided live audio transmissions of theatrical events to home and public listening rooms at the end of the 19th century. The first of these was the Theatrophone, which in 1881 broadcast by telephone evening performances at the Opera, Opera Comique, and Théâtre Francais to visitors to the Paris International Electrical Exhibition. Versions of this medium were then available to subscribers in the French capital right through to the early 1930s. As Guizou Pisano documents, at the end of the 19th century, devices similar to the theatrophone appeared in every major European city, as well as across the Atlantic, with easily the most sophisticated and elaborate of these being a system established in Budapest, which was operational until the early 1920s. Stratford-upon-Avon was too distant from Europe's major metropolises for the Shakespeare Memorial Theatre to be connected to any of these services. But late 19th century virtual travellers could experience something of the sense of being there by looking at lantern slides of the Memorial Theatre and, more immersively, stereoscope views of the pilgrimage site of Shakespeare's birthplace. The Memorial Theatre, the precursor of today's Royal Shakespeare Theatre, was opened in 1879. But it was not until 32 years later that the cinema offered patrons the chance of being virtually there and watching a production. In the late summer of 1910, the cooperative cinematograph company filmed Frank Benson's Festival Company in versions of Julius Caesar, Macbeth, The Taming of the Shrew, and this. Can you run the, sec the second clip, please? And it being 1911, it's mute. So although the image is hard to read, Benson is center stage giving his celebrated Gloucester with his wife, Constance Benson, as Lady Anne. The 22-minute version of Richard III is the only one of the films to survive, and even it lacks the concluding, a horse, a horse. But it's a precious trace of a long-vanished performance tradition, and we should be grateful that it has recently been released on the British Film Institute's Silent Shakespeare DVD. As far as we can tell from the existing print, the production did not, as we'll see shortly in other extracts, attempt to use paratexts around the performance to transport the viewer to Stratford. But I think there's another way in which the film is imparting the sense of being there. Each of the scenes is filmed as a single wide shot by a static and frontally placed camera in affording a full view straight on of the stage. Other films made at the time, like Cecil Hepworth's Tilly the Tomboy Visits the Poor, demonstrate 
that a far more developed and elaborated screen language was available to British filmmakers by 1910, closer to the dominant narrative styles of later studio films. So the makers of Richard III very deliberately chose a theatrical tableau approach, so as, I suggest, to underscore the sense of watching the performance in a theatre. More than a century on, there are those who request, with some vehemence, that live cinema relays present only a continuous wide shot of the stage. Indeed, the Vienna State Opera offers this single static view as an alternative online stream alongside its more conventionally mixed for broadcast and mediated presentations of its productions. And apparently some 20% of the subscribers opt for this shot. But in the low-resolution image of Benson's production, this distance shot makes the action hard to read. And unless you know the play well, the narrative is difficult to comprehend. Despite the new Memorial Theatre opening there in 1932, the old one had burned down. Stratford-upon-Avon was also too far from the Alexandra Palace transmitter for television to attempt a live broadcast until, as we'll see, 1955. BBC Radio, however, took listeners to the town regularly from 1928 onwards for the speeches on Shakespeare's birthday. And on the 12th of July, 1936, broadcast live from the theatre, B. Iden Payne's Festival Company production of Much Ado About Nothing. Now, at pretty much exactly the same moment as radio was taking listeners at home to Stratford and the fledgling television service was taking lookers-in at home to the West End Theatre, there was a significant but almost entirely overlooked impetus to challenge the idea that television was an exclusively domestic medium. In early 1937, the BBC decided against developing the clearly inferior bared transmission technologies at Alexandra Palace and definitively threw in its lot with the rival company, uh, Marconi EMI. At the end of May 1937, licking his wounds from his rejection, John Logie Baird, who in his eyes was the inventor of television, applied to the post office for a license to send television programs to cinemas by wireless. The post office seemed sympathetic, in part because it wanted to be seen to be supporting Baird, whose advocates were extremely effective in securing press attention, although the BBC was implacably opposed. In the late 1930s, Baird was backed by Isidore Ostra, who ran the Gaumont British Picture Corporation, and who had taken effective control of Baird's ailing business in 1932. With Ostra's support, Baird's large screen receiving apparatus was installed at the Dominion in Tottenham Court Road, one of the Gaumont British cinemas, and a number of partially successful experiments were undertaken. Similar demonstrations of what uh, was called cinema television by some and theatre television by others were organised by Solomon Segal's rival Scoffany Company. And on the 23rd of February 1939, both Baird and Scoffany mounted large-screen cinema presentations of a boxing title fight. Such was the success of these screenings that Oscar Deutsch, who ran the Odeon Cinemas chain, tried out the Scoffany system in his flagship cinema in Leicester Square, 
earning plaudits in the press, and then announced that he was going to install Scoffany big-screen television systems in all 60 of his Odeons in the London area. In addition, Gaumont British had large-screen television systems installed in five London cinemas with a total capacity of over 7,000 seats. And then the war came, and television for both the home and for cinemas was shut down. During and just after the war, new support for the concept of theatre television came from J. Arthur Rank, who acquired control of Gaumont British in October 1941 and the Odeon cinemas earlier in, early in 42. By 1946, the Rank organisation was seriously planning a service to broadcast shows and plays from its studios directly into cinemas. And indeed, theatre television remained an active alternative to conventional cinema ex exhibition through until the early 1950s. But the unwillingness of the post office to allocate bandwidth for a from a limited spectrum, combined with problematic projection technology, the rapid growth of domestic television ownership, and hostility to the proposed form from conventional exhibitors meant that theatre television became a road not taken for the increasingly confident medium. By the mid-1950s, the interest and investment from cinema owners had a new focus in the commercial television service ITV that was to go on air as an advertising-funded rival to the BBC on the 22nd of September, 1955. The arrival of ITV, which broke the BBC's television monopoly, was seen as a significant threat to the corporation. And much as the, B, as the troubled BBC, threatened by what was expected to be a hostile white paper, turned to Shakespeare this year with an extensive programme of commissions at the heart of which was the broadcast of Shakespeare Live from the RSC on BBC Two and in cinemas. So in 1955, a threatened BBC mobilised the cultural capital of the Bard with its first live television outside broadcast from Stratford-upon-Avon. At 9pm on Sunday the 2nd of October, just 10 days after the upstart crow of ITV had started to ruffle feathers, BBC Television gave to the nation only the second post-interval part of the Memorial Theatre's production of The Merry Wives of Windsor. Before that, however, there were two warm-up acts. First at 8.15, a studio production of Bernard Shaw's playlet, The Dark Lady of the Sonnets, which imagines Shakespeare himself meeting Elizabeth I. So not only do you get Shakespeare, you also get Elizabeth I. And then an introduction to the performance. Can you run the video, please? This is, a, uh, many of you must have been to Stratford and Avon. You, these scenes will be familiar to you. This is Stratford, the birthplace of Shakespeare in Henley Street, Stratford and Avon, very much restored. This is Anne Hathaway's cottage at Shottery, about a mile away, where Shakespeare went wooing Anne Hathaway, whom he eventually married. This is the famous church of the Holy Trinity alongside the Avon, very picturesque church, very 300 years old when Shakespeare was born. This is the, the theatre, about 30 years old, the modern Shakespeare Memorial Theatre at Stratford. That's the exterior of it. <laughs> Thank you. 
You now see the interior of the theatre. The audience is just reassembling after having seen the first act of The Merry Ways of Windsor. They're just coming back into the theatre after the interval. Now, this uh, particular play you've just seen, The Dark Lady of the Sonnets, by Bernard Shaw, was written a very long time ago, 45 years ago. It was first performed in 1910, and it was written on behalf of the National Theatre for Great Britain. Shaw was very much interested in the idea, and many years before that, way back in the 80s, William Archer and Granville Barker and Shaw himself were very keen to give England a national theatre. It never came to anything, or hasn't done yet. I can remember about 20 years ago seeing the first sword cut by Bernard Shaw in Kensington of a national theatre, and everybody was, all the actors were there and all the critics were there, were all very happy till the rain came down. The rain came down rather symbolically. I remember there were some madrigal singers singing fa-la-la-la and Elizabethan madrigals, and all went very happily till the rain came down. Then we all adjourned to a hotel over the way and ended with any money at all, gave a hundred pounds to endow a seat in the National Theatre. Then came a big war. Then about 10 years ago, we all attended the great occasion on the site of the Festival of Britain in Waterloo, when a foundation was sto stone was laid for the new National Theatre, for the newly appointed site of the National Theatre. Not a stone has been added to it since. We're all wondering why, but there it is. We're still waiting for the National Theatre. Now, in my view, and in the view of many people, the National Theatre's function is fulfilled by this theatre at Stratford-in-Avon, the Shakespeare Memorial Theatre, and by the Old Vic in London. These two, between them, do all that a National Theatre could do, except educate actors in the business of acting. So that's the charmingly inept Scottish journalist, Alan Dent, encouraging viewers to imagine themselves in Stratford and indeed sitting amongst that pictured audience of local worthies and blue stockings. He's also, of course, implicitly aligning the BBC with Stratford and the Old Vic as the true national theatre for Britain. See if you can get Shaw and Shakespeare from ITV. Dent's rather more uh, polished successors include the ebullient Emma Freud, who until recently hosted the NT Live broadcasts, and Susie Klein, who fronts those from the RSC. But in a way that seems very familiar to contemporary producers like myself, who are accustomed to receiving expressions of scepticism about the value of such prologue sequences, the BBC's internal audience research report for the Merry Wives of Windsor noted that, quote, there was certainly widespread agreement that Alan Dent's preamble was no more than moderately helpful. <laughs> Glen Byam Shaw production with designs by Motley and with Anthony Quayle, Angela Baddeley and Joyce Redmond came across rather well. And it's apparent from the existing recording of the play that the television production techniques were directly comparable to those that we use in the Royal Shakespeare Theatre today. Similarly, echoing critiques today of live relays, the critic Maurice Richardson highlighted the debate that continues today about pitting creative interpretation by a screen director against what he identified as, quote, mere reproduction. This is Richardson. Perfectly correct and very necessary to stress, as we are all doing now, the importance of the new medium. 
and the need for specifically televisual programs and production techniques as opposed to mere reproduction. Nevertheless, there is still nothing like a good play on your screen, if only you can find one. There was little, if any, originality about the BBC's libation to Shaw and Shakespeare last Sunday, yet it was immensely satisfying. Viewers were similarly taken to Stratford in the prologue to the next screen version of a memorial theatre production in 1959. Can we run this one, please? The country you see through the windshield of your television screen is the heart of England, the county of Warwickshire. And this is the heart of Warwickshire, the town of Stratford-upon-Avon. All the world comes to Stratford. They come from Norway and from Pakistan. They come from Birmingham, Warwickshire, only 20 miles away, and 4,020 miles away from Birmingham, Alabama. Young students from Ghana and from UCLA, traveling businessmen from Athens, Greece and Toronto, Canada, honeymooners from Tokyo and Terre Haute, divorcees from Reno and bachelors from Dublin, artists from Savannah, Georgia, and schoolmasters from down the road at Upper Slaughter in the Cotswold Hills. The principal attraction that draws these people to Stratford-upon-Avon is the Shakespeare Memorial Theatre, to which you are all invited this evening. Our narrator is Charles Lawton, playing both Lear and Bottom in the 100th anniversary season at Stratford. Here he is a little later in the introduction, speaking to the cultural anxieties of the moment. Can we run this one, please? But as proud as we all are of Peter Hall's production of The Dream, I had some reservations about bringing it to television. After all, Shakespeare surrounded by cowboys, commercials, and all that jazz. But then one morning, I was walking with my brother-in-law down a Stratford Street, and I looked up to see the past linked with today. The television antenna on the roof of a Tudor house reminded me that in his day, Will was a man of the moment. And I'm sure that if he were a man of this moment, he'd be writing for this medium to reach the greatest audience. And if I thought he would resent our cutting one of his plays to meet the demands of the relentless clock, darn it, I wouldn't be doing it. Well, if you excuse me, I'm... I'm going to put some colour on this beard. See you in a few moments. Good evening. I'm Peter Hall. While Charles Lawton is backstage with the other actors, preparing for his wonderful performance as Bottom, I'm here to say a few words about the production and, as its director, to show you to your seats in the Shakespeare Memorial Theatre. The play is beginning. We have no curtain, and the action starts with the entrance of the court of Duke Theseus. There you see our set, a standing set that won't change. Sometimes it's a palace, sometimes a carpenter's shop, and sometimes an enchanted wood on a midsummer's night. Here comes Duke Theseus. So Peter Hall shows us to our virtual seat, although I don't think there's any other audience, as far as I can see, in the theatre. Hall's Dream, which he later made into a feature film, also featured Ian Holm as Puck and both Vanessa Redgrave and Diana Rigg in small roles. 1959 was the year that Hall took over the running of Stratford's Shakespeare Memorial Theatre, just before transforming it into the Royal Shakespeare Company. 
One of the visitors to Stratford that summer was the American television producer, Hubble Robinson, who since the war had been developing serious single dramas for television, including for the Playhouse 90 anthology series. What he was always after, he said, was mass with class, which I'm sure sounds better with an American accent. And he had a dream to record all of Shakespeare's plays for American television. He struck a deal with Hall's company and brought over from France three electronic cameras which were installed in the theatre. These captured the production on the stage with the live mix being recorded on film as a kinescope. Robinson intended that he would sell this as a pilot to the NBC network, but there's no record that the production was actually broadcast or indeed of anything more coming of his grand plan for the canon. What then happens at the RSC at least is that the idea of a screen version attempting to transport the audience to the theatre to give them the sense of being there in an auditorium largely disappears with only a couple of eccentric exceptions for the next 50 years. Indeed, it seems to become important for television as a medium to assert itself over the theatre. The turn of the 1960s, after all, is the moment at which, and I'm collapsing a complex and deeply fascinating history here, the Canadian executive Sidney Newman, with a proven commitment to original television drama written specially for the medium and often engaged with urgent social issues, ousts the distinguished BBC head of drama, Michael Barry, whose commitment to classic theatre was central to the BBC output through the 1950s. In keeping with a modernist imperative, television must, must demonstrate its autonomous specificity as a medium, particularly in relation to the theatre. And this is an idea given inchoate but effective voice by the playwright Troy Kennedy Martin in his 1964 manifesto published in Encore, Nats Go Home, in which he declared, quote, all drama which owes its form or substance to theatre plays is out. Yet the BBC in particular still needed the cultural capital of classic theatre, of Shakespeare, and of the newly established Royal Shakespeare Company, which throughout the 1960s was cutting edge, controversial, and sexy as perhaps it has never been since. And not to mention having many of the best and the brightest actors in the land under contract. So the BBC developed strategies to transplant RSC productions from the theatre, or at least from the idea and location of the theatre. Here's a fragment of one of the earliest attempts to achieve this. Can you run this, please? Fair youth, I would I could make thee believe I love. Me believe it? You may as soon make her you love believe it. Which I warrant she is apter to do than confess she does. But in good sooth, you he that hangs the verses on the trees wherein Rosalind is so admired. I swear to thee, youth, by the white hand of Rosalind, I am that he, that unfortunate he. But are you so much in love as your rhymes speak? Neither rhyme nor reason can express how much. Love is merely a madness, and I tell you, deserves as well a dark house and a whip as madmen do. Yet, I profess curing it by counsel. Have you ever cured any, sir? Yes, one. 
than this man. He was to imagine me his love, his mistress. And I set him every day to woo me. <laughs> At which time would I, being but a moonish youth, grieve, be effeminate, changeable, longing and liking, proud, fantastical, apish, shallow, inconstant, full of tears, full of smiles, for every passion something and for no passion truly anything. As boys and women are for the most part cattle of this color. Could now like him, now loathe him, now entertain him, then forswear him, now weep for him, then spit at him, <laughs> that I drave my suitor from his mad humor of love into a living humor of madness, which was to forswear the full stream of the world and to live in a nook, merely monastic. And thus I cured him. Vanessa Redgrave as Rosalind in the RSC's first smash hit, Michael Elliott's 1961 production that was recorded in a television centre studio in 1963. I can't resist quoting Michael Billington's retrospective judgment on her performance, which he wrote last year. Quote, I've never seen, and I realise you have to be a certain age to have caught it, a more exciting demonstration of the ecstasy of love. Glorious as this is, there's no sense of the production endeavouring to give you any idea that you are in a theatre. The next great RSC hit was The Wars of the Roses, a trilogy drawn from the Henry VI plays and Richard III, which in fact was filmed in the theatre in Stratford-upon-Avon, although you would never know this from the drama itself. Let me run this one, please. and Barclay go along with me. Sirs, take up the course. To Chertsey, noble lord? No. To Whitefriars. There attend my coming. Ever woman in this humor wooed? Was ever woman in this humor one? I'll have her, but I will not keep her long. What I that killed her husband and his father to meet her in her heart's extremest hate and yet to win her all the world to nothing? Has she forgot already that brave prince Edward, her lord, my son? three months since stabbed in my angry mood at Tewkesbury, and will she yet debase her eye on me? My dukedom to a beggarly denier. I do mistake my person all this while. Upon my life she finds, although I cannot myself, to be a marvelous proper man. I'll be a charges for a looking glass and entertain some score or two of tailors to study fashions to adorn my body. Since I am crept in favor with myself, I will maintain it with some little cost. But first, I'll turn yon fellow in his grave, and then return lamenting to my love. 
Shine out, fair sun, till I have bought a glass. That I may see my shadow as I pass. Uh, so, of course, one of the things that's especially interesting here is how Ian Holmes speaks directly into the lens, embracing and exploiting television in a way that a theatre relay never would. All of this came about at the end of the 1964 season when the Stratford Theatre closed early and the BBC moved in a huge outside broadcast operation with two mobile control rooms and a crew of more than 60 people. A decking was built out across the stalls and the stage and auditorium effectively turned into a huge studio for rehearsals and a shoot that lasted for eight weeks. In part, this was so that the recording could be made with John Berry's huge steel deck monster of a set, which could never have been replicated elsewhere. But it was also because both the BBC and the RSC wanted to preserve a company ethos for the cast and creative team that they feared would be dissipated if the production was transplanted to Television Centre. The Wars of the Roses became one of the very rare productions that was shot in a theatre but with nothing to signify that the space was a theatre. Televisions and, in a parallel manner, the cinema's assertion as a medium over the theatre continued uh, in RSC productions for the screen, and I would argue in those by other companies as well, through until, let's say... Where is it? Has it disappeared? I've got a sequence of stills, so let me, let me run through the, the text while we're seeing if we can bring it back. Uh, so it, I, think, I think this sense of television and the cinema asserting itself over the theatre runs through until Hamlet in 2009 with David Tennant. Um, after its successful stage run in Stratford and London, director Greg Doran significantly reconceived the production for a single-camera shoot on location in an abandoned Jesuit seminary in Mill Hill. Variants of this re rejection of the theatre strategy informed the BBC's 1968 studio version of All's Well That Ends Well, which was the first television Shakespeare to be made in colour. Peter Brook's film versions of his mid-1960s controversial dramas US and Marassad. Brook's 1971 feature film of King Lear, based on his 1962 Stratford production with Paul Schofield. Trevor Nunn's productions for ITV of Anthony and Cleopatra and Macbeth in the 1970s, and Greg Doran's, oh look, uh, Hamlet, um, All's Well That Ends Well, uh, Mara Saad, uh, King Lear, um, Macbeth, directed by Trevor Nunn, Macbeth directed by Greg Doran. Um, and uh, carries through to Greg Doran's Macbeth in 2000 and Julius Caesar in 2012. The eccentric exception, along with some truly dodgy haircuts, which I include here for its unintentional comic value, is Trevor Nunn's 1976 staging of the Comedy of Errors, which was reconceived for television in 1978 with television director Philip Casson. This is the opening. Can you run it, please? Uh 
So what we have here, at, uh, at least to my eyes, is a deeply uneasy mix of location filming and electronic recording in a television studio, the first shot of which is that of Judy Dench on the balcony. The elaborate sets were reconstructed in a Midlands studio, and the performance played out in front of multiple cameras, recording in a conventional manner. So I why is the theatre here at all? Our laws. And since the mortal and intestine jars twixt Syracusians and ourselves, it hath in solemn synods been decreed, both by the Syracusians and ourselves, to admit no traffic to our adverse towns, nay more. If any born at Ephesus be seen at any Syracusian marts and fairs, or any Syracusian born come to the Bay of Ephesus, he dies. <laughs> so why is the theatre here at all, especially when the image quality and the formal language are so different? Why does this production strain to return us to the idea of the television viewer being there in the RSC's auditorium? One reason, I think, is that Nunn's 1970 productions um, were made not for the BBC, but for the regional ITV company, ATV, which was later Central. Stratford's fell within ATV's region, and the commercial company, at a moment when it was looking to renew its franchise with the IBA, wanted to associate itself as strongly as possible with the potent values of Shakespeare and the RSC. They must have believed that shots of the swan and the hirsute and fashionably dressed locals would reinforce this message. At the same time, unlike Antony and Cleopatra and Macbeth, Nunn's other two screen Shakespeare's in the 1970s, the comedy of errors, and this production especially, is, well a comedy, and a raucous one at that, and it requires for effect an audience's laughter. The vocal amusement was legitimated by the sense of the production being shot in the theatre, even if, to my ear in the 21st century, it is all too clearly dubbed on. Fast forward to 2009, and NT Live's broadcasted just 75 cinemas or so of Fedra with Helen Mirren. As is well documented, this was an immediate success, although for internal reasons the RSC was slow to follow the NT's lead. But in 2013, we launched RSC Live from Stratford-upon-Avon with Richard II, and to date we've broadcast more than 10, uh, we've broadcast 10 main stage productions of Shakespeare from Stratford, with two more to come this autumn. Our hope is that the broadcast can follow the strategy in the theatre where over seven years, all of the first folio plays will be given only one production. By 2021, we hope that we'll have recorded the complete canon. To give you a sense of our approach, let Chorus in Henry V fire up your imagination. Can you run this, please? Oh, for a muse of fire that will ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage princes to act and monarchs to behold the swelling scene then should the warlike harry like himself assume the port of mars and at his heels leashed in like hounds should famine sword and fire crouch for employment 
Pardon, gentles all, the flat, unraised spirits that have dared on this unworthy scaffold to bring forth so great an object. Can this cockpit hold the vasty fields of France? Or may we cram within this wooden hole the very cask that did affright the air at Agincourt? Oh, pardon. Since a crooked figure may attest in little place a million, and let us ciphers to this greater compte on your imaginary forces work. Suppose within the girdle of these walls are now confined two mighty monarchies, whose high uprearid and abutting fronts the perilous narrow ocean parts asunder. Peace out our imperfections with your thoughts into a thousand parts divide one man and make imaginary puissance. Think when we talk of horses that you see them printing their proud hoofs in the receiving earth, for tis your thoughts that now must deck our kings, carry them here and there, jumping o'er times, turning the accomplishment of many years into an hourglass. For the which supply, admit me, chorus to this history, who, prologue-like, your humble patience pray, gently to hear, kindly to judge, our play. So what you have here is the renaissance of what I hope I've demonstrated is essentially a television form, that of the live relay, which goes back to at least 1938. Indeed, the broadcasts are often staffed by directors, vision mixers, and others who trained in television back in the 1970s and 80s. And this production form has combined with the theatre television model of exhibition that was initiated in the 30s and 40s, but then abandoned. With the reassertion, and these are production shots from the process, with the reassertion of the theatre came also a revival of the concern to create on the producer's side and to embrace on the audience's side the sense of being there, the sense of being taken to and located in the theatre. Partly the sense of being there is conjured up and continually reinforced by the paratext, by the host's introductions, by glimpses backstage, by the marketing materials and so forth. Partly being put there, being there is put across by a strong visual and oral awareness of the theatre audience during performance, so that those in the auditorium act as surrogates for those in cinemas. And being there is also, I think, implied and imparted by the language of the shots and the narrativizing effects of camera movements and edit rhythms, continually drawing the audience in and folding the viewer, embracing her into the world on screen. Yet, of course, we also know that we are seated in a cinema, spatially and temporally removed from the auditorium in Stratford, and our awareness of, I th of this, I think, comes and goes, much as does our awareness of the actor and then the character she's playing in the depicted world. Somehow we shift or oscillate back and forth between being there and being here, and it's in this constant mental movement that I sense that some of the distinctive uh, pleasure 
of live cinema is created. I'm very aware I'm out of time, but I want to end with one final clip, if I may. Um, this is uh, from the RSC broadcast of Othello. I want to end with this and with a final provocation. shed her blood, nor scar that whiter skin of hers than snow, and smooth as monumental alabaster. Yet she must die, else she'll betray more men. out the light and then put out the light if I quench thee thou flaming minister I can again thy former light restore should I repent me but once put out thy light thou cunning's pattern of excelling nature I know not where is that Promethean heat that can thy light relume when I have plucked the rose, I cannot give it vital growth again. It needs must wither. I'll smell it on the tree. Almost persuade justice to break her sword. One more, one more. Be thus when thou art dead, and I will kill thee and love thee after. One more. And this, the last. Tears with sorrows heavenly, it strikes where it doth love. She wakes. Who's that? Othello. I, Desdemona. Will you come to bed, my lord? Have you prayed tonight, Desdemona? So I want to end by returning to the listener review 
of Twelfth Night, with which I began. At the start of that piece, Grace Wyndham Goldie asked, quote, is the straight-from-the-theatre stuff going to be satisfactory? Othello is, for me, the most achieved of the broadcasts that we've done from Stratford. It's the most ambitious and the one where the screen treatment most sensitively and appropriately mirrors, complements, and extends the meanings of the original stage production. So Othello, for me, is not just satisfactory, and it's not even exceptionally good. The screen Othello is better than being there. I'm almost ready to assert this about many or even most live cinema relays, but I'm sure it's the case with Othello. Working with stage director Iqbal Khan, Hugh Kwashi developed an understanding of Othello that was very interior and a performance that was complex but controlled. Hugh spoke, for example, of not wanting to fall into the stereotype of the ranting black man. This exceptionally intelligent reading of Othello was impressive in the theatre, but I'd argue on the screen, because the camera closes in on it, focuses it, reinforcing and complementing and extending the subtleties of performance, it is a revelation. The screen version allows you to see Hugh Quash's Othello better than you ever could in the Stratford Auditorium. In this case, being in the Clapham Picture House watching Othello was a richer, more involving, more rewarding, and more aesthetically satisfying experience than being in the Royal Shakespeare Theatre. Thank you.